Okay, we are live here once again for uh, the Added Souls podcast sessions. Stefan Maier with you, AddedSouls.com. How are you doing? Doing okay, man? Doing all right? Huh? We floating? We above water? We above ground? That's a good thing, isn't it? We're going to keep working at the uh, article titled Atheist Making Bible Verses You Need to Know from our friends over at apologeticspress.org. It's a lengthy article, so we had to kind of split it into sessions. Our first session, of course, last week. I encourage you to go check out the archived edition if you want to catch up to what's taking place here with this here article. And uh, yeah, that'll bring you up to date there. Um, Bible verses that make atheists, right? Atheist Bible verses. A great many of them, of course, I myself in my past life entertained and said, yeah, I don't want to follow that book. Look at this book. Look at the things, look at the things it's saying. How dare it say those things? I don't want to follow any book like that. Written by crazy men in an ancient time, right? And uh, that's what we kind of utilized as an excuse or as what we thought was an argument to say God don't exist any. So, I mean, God don't exist and uh, those verses prove it. And so, therefore, I'm an atheist or um, someone who's just not going to believe in God, the God of the Bible for sure. I'm not going to follow him. No, there's no way. Uh, But when you kind of take the time necessary to open your thoughts in a humble way, like truly genuinely ask yourself, okay, Let me look into things for my own independent, freely thinking mind. I don't want to listen to what everyone else has to say. I don't need a third party interpretation here. I can read for myself. I have an independent thinking mind and I have accountability. So I can look at this book, open it and see the words, read the words and formulate, of course, the context taking place and interpret it according to the author's intent. And I can see and make sense of it my own self. And when you start to go down that path, and you start to read for yourself, void of any influence or agenda, just to read it as for what it is in its context, uh, you start to see all these so-called arguments or contradictions dwindle away. Fabrications of man's mind, who seek to live rebellious, seek to live in sin without the emotion of guilt, if you will the sensation of guilt in the things we do that are immoral or lawless. Atheist Bible verses. The go-to verses that atheists will pluck and say, Aha, see here, there is no God. Look at how evil he is. (laughs) Which made ourselves walking contradictions, right? I don't believe in God. And here's why, because he's so evil. (laughs) How can you believe in a God? Say you don't believe in a God, but then with the other side of our mouth, we'd say, well, he's evil. Well, if there is no God, there is no evil. What are you talking about? There is no objective absolute, and I am objectively absolutely sure there is no objective absolute. <laughs> walking, you know, that's, how we, that's how foolish we were. We were walking contradictions, right? That's, that's, what, that's what happens. That's why we see contradiction in the Bible. We want to. We, we, we create that argument in our minds. But once we become honest with ourselves, right? Look in the mirror and be like, hey, man, what's the deal? What's the thing here with these Christians and what they believe? These crazy, crazy Christians. What do they believe? And like I mentioned in our last episode last week uh, for our Thursday topical session, um, 
it's interesting, truly, how we seek information, of course, according to what our preconceived notion may be willing to accept. And that kind of causes a breach of moving forward and truly knowing what's happening and what's going on. And again, as I mentioned last week, once you start to think for yourself, free thinking, and you're independent of thought, and you just read the Bible for what it is without any third-party interpretation, you don't need no TV evangelists, no pastors, reverends, teachers, preachers, mom, dads, neighbors, co-workers, friends, whoever, no one. You don't need anyone. Just your own thought, your own mind. And you open the book and you start to read. There's a great many things in there you're not going to understand. I didn't. I was like, I don't even know what that means. But there are some things there I do know. So you keep reading it over and over again. And then you start to see, oh, okay, this is what's going on. And then you start to recognize individuals who are teaching it according to what you can plainly read and see. So then you tap into their studies and you're like, hey, you've been studying this for a while and I've been hearing you teach about it and it seems very accurate to what I'm reading. What other insights have you been able to recognize in the text? And then you start to have a, a group think, right? A think tank of people who truly are just genuinely, honestly wanting to know if, if the Bible's true and the information in there, is there any contradiction, stuff like that. And lo and behold, what you start to recognize also is not only that it is true and accurate and defendable in court, it's that you start to recognize that three quarters of everyone who claims Christianity and all these churches who claim to be Christian churches aren't. I mean, they are by their own standard, their own measurement. They've created Christianity in their own image. They've created their own statements of faith, their own creeds, their own traditions, their own worldviews, their own rituals, and all that stuff. I mean... It, They've done that, but it's not authentic. It's not genuine. It's not true and real to the Christianity you read in the pages of the New Testament Bible. And that's a bit, that was a bit tricky because you're like, oh, wait a minute. So all these people, religious leaders involved also, of all these denominational oceans, all these churches that claim to be Christian churches with various names, right? From the Catholic Church to the Baptist, the Pentecostal, the Wesleyan, the House of Nazareth, the this, the that, you name it. You, I mean, there's thousands of them. When you start to read the Bible from an atheist perspective, but an honest atheist perspective, meaning I just truly want to know if there's any credibility to the Bible. So I want to read it for myself. I don't, I'm going to stop listening to every source that I've been listening to telling me that it's a walking contradiction or telling me that, yeah, you need to believe in this book and some saying, no, you don't. I want to think for myself. Turn off the TV, turn off the smart devices and just open the book for yourself and start reading it. There's a lot of stuff in there you're not going to understand. But after a while, I'm telling you, it starts to make a lot of sense. And the more sense it's making, because you can see the logic from it, you can see how it has a context and how that pretty much almost everything you've heard about it was wrong. And that pretty much almost everyone who claims to be Christians or part of Christian churches have just created their own form of religion and stamped Christianity on it because it, it doesn't look like, sound like, or walk like anything you'd find in the New Testament Bible. Really? And then that gets tricky because you're like, 
you people claim to be Christians, but what I see you doing isn't what was going on in the new, like, that's not what Jesus said we should do. And that, that, so, so like you, you start off with this broad path, right? And then the more you're walking down this broad path of an, and you have an honest heart and you're learning and you're going down that rabbit hole all the way, well, the path starts to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow. And then you find that moment of impasse where it's like, you're either going to throw it all and all say, oh, no, 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 you know, this, this can't be true. None of this is true. Well, you, you meet Morpheus. You find you're seeking it. You want to know what's going on. You're searching for the truth. If there is any truth, you're entertaining. There might be truth. I don't know. Let's just find out for our own selves. And then all of a sudden, you're going down the rabbit hole, down the rabbit hole. You're learning. You're learning. You're learning. You're seeing all these things. And then boom, you're in face to face with Morpheus, <laughs> and he's got two pills in front of you. Right? He's got the red pill and he's got the blue pill. One of them is going to lead to clarity, awake uh, to reality, and the other one keeps you in the myth and bondage of a lie, superstition, and all sorts of uh, religious uh, enterprise created at, in the image of men and their selfish ambitions, their desires. Which one are you going to take? Well, some are going to take the one that remains, keeps them in a lie because, well, I'm comforted by a lie. It's all I've ever known. I was born and raised being taught lies. So that's all I, and I call lies truth, saying I don't want to change that. Most do that. Most do that when they come to that moment and you can either wake up or remain sleeping, and, and most say, I just want to keep sleeping. It's fine. Sadly, most do that. But the narrow gate certainly is found, and you start to recognize how just a very few people around this globe truly understand what genuine Christianity is in accordance to the author's intent for our minds. Who's what author? Well, the great intelligent being the grand engineer that set all things good in order and motion, communicating to us his creation through the penmanship of the Holy Spirit, communication with us through his son, the Christ who walked among us on earth, like all this information, which prior to our uh, education in the, in the spiritual realm was just like a joke. No, that can't be true. They're all a bunch of clowns. I don't want to follow no Christians. There is no God. The books of the Bible's full of contradictions. But lo and behold, again, when you're honest and you start seeking, you start asking questions, and you just want to find out for yourself, there it is. There it is, really, truly. So along those lines, of course, me sharing a bit of my thoughts and my journey, we go to our friends over at apologeticspress.org, which we were in our first session last week of this article titled Atheist Making Bible Verses You Need to Know, which I shortened to Atheist Bible Verses. Uh, we, we did the first section there, but it was too lengthy, so we, we broke her up, and we're going to finish it off today. Is that okay? Please consider subscribing, following, liking, sharing, drop a comment, all that kind of good stuff. Please consider, if you are willing and able, to sign up to addedsouls.locals.com. If you're looking at this in the visual format, you'll see it down there at the bottom left of your screen, probably, where it says addedsouls.locals.com. Sign up there. You can support the Added Souls ministry through the Maya family, my wife, my kiddos. That's how we eat food, right? Through God's good grace, through your compassion, your willingness to partake. If you sign up there, you can support there monthly. You will have access to exclusive content, all that kind of good stuff. We labor alongside the East Coast Church of Christ over here on the East Coast of Canada. You can check out the .com, eastcoastchurchofchrist.com. 
uh, you can check out our Facebook page, East Coast Church of Christ on Facebook. You'll see their weekly uploads, videos, things of that kind, and uh, pictures of a church, growing church family, all that kind of wonderful stuff. So if you support the Added Souls Ministry, there's a lot of good stuff you're partaking in. And of course, you will be made available to updates and reports. We can have a phone conversation. We can have video chat. We can exchange email conversations, all that kind of good stuff. Please consider it. Please consider it. So, uh, apologeticspress.org. The article titled, Atheist Making Bible Verses You Need to Know. We did the first section last week. It was written by our brother Eric Lyons over there. And uh, we just kind of went through the introduction stuff, and we went through a few reasons why atheists, or a few verses atheists go to, a few locations in the Bible atheists go to and say, ha-ha, see, there is no God. Look at how evil that is. And uh, we dealt with a few of those. The first one was, Lot offered his daughters to wicked men of Sodom. Right? That's like a ha-ha go-to place for them. And of course, they pluck it out of context, and we dealt with that. Go to the archive video last week, just last week. Atheist Bible verses. We dealt with that one. If you are indeed trying to reach someone and they are of the atheistic persuasion, go back, listen, take notes, and you'll know how easily the truth is defended in an honorable court of law, if you will. So Lot offered his daughters to the wicked men of Sodom. Very quickly, Lot shouldn't have done that. And God did not say, oh, good boy, you should have done that. No, he did something he should not have done, which was a very foolish as a, as a parent, as a father, uh, he allowed himself to uh, be emotionally wrapped and lose his self-control into an act of uh, desperation, which should not have taken place. Okay, the num- we dealt with number two. God told Abraham to kill his son. Ah, uh, see, there's no God. I don't want to believe in the God that says that a father needs to kill his son. Well, nor would I. But lo and behold, when you look at it a bit deeper, with an honest heart, and you're just genuinely wanting to know the truth, if there is truth to be found... There it is. It explains what took place there in context. And that God is not some kind of bloodlusting, murderous tyrant who just wants to see fathers murder their their sons and daughters. Not at all. We dealt with that last session. By all means, go back to it. All right, so that brings us today to our location here with number three. God accepted Jephthah's daughter as a human sacrifice. Dun-dun-dun. See, there it is. There is no God. And again, there's no parameter. There's no measurement in the atheistic mind. I entertained it. I have a past life. It's pretty checkered. I know it. We were walking contradictions. Oh, that's evil. That's an evil Bible verse. Well, who told you it's evil? Where did you get that notion? And how can you even accept something being evil or good, right or wrong? You can't. You're an atheist. You're an animal. There is no right or wrong. There is no heaven or hell. There is no God. There is no devil. There is no morality. You're just existing. You're a slave to the dance of your DNA. That's what we were. So when you start thinking there is a right and a wrong, and you start saying, well, that's evil and that's good, dude, you're accepting the Christian worldview. How dare you? That's what got me. That was a little bit of the things that got me thinking, like, Why would I see something and say, that's evil? There is no evil. We're animals. Nothing, literally nothing, exploded into something somehow. We don't know. That's okay. That's science, right? And through billions of years, you know, primordial soup and all that kind of stuff, here we are. These intricate, elaborate, engineered faculties of 
uh, intelligent creation. It's all an accident. We're animals. We're slaves. We just act on instinct. That's it. We have no thinking thought. We have no conscience. But yet we do. And we fight against it. Why? If we're animals. All that kind of stuff. God accepted Jephthah's daughter as a human sacrifice. See? Evil. God's evil. There is no God. Well, I'm an atheist. I can't say, I can't even... I can't even think for myself. I'm a slave to the dance of my DNA. I'm just an animal. You see, once you start to really truly open your mind to the power and blessing that's we've been given by our creator, the maker, as C-3PO would say, you know, the maker. Well, then you truly start to expand your free thinking mind into realms of great intelligence. It'll make us wiser than our enemies. And you start to recognize that there certainly is emotion, there is conscience, there is right, there is wrong. But we are seeing the results of a fallen nation that has since left, rejected, withdrawn from, and now rebelliously hate the notion of a god. We've been acting like animals, that's why we've legalized murder and perversion and all that kind of stuff. Number three, God accepted Jephthah's daughter as a human sacrifice. This is an article from our friends over at apologeticspress.org. Plug, 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 check it out. It says, and I quote from the article, our brother Eric Lyons, the writer, in, quote, the 10 worst Old Testament verses by Dan Barker. Dan Barker is an atheist, and uh, I would encourage you to see a few of his debates with our brother Kyle Butt, or, well, one of them, of course, Kyle Butt did debate several other atheist Blair Scott and I forget the name of the other one there but anyways so in the 10 worst old bible old testament bible verses by Dan Barker the co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation listed Judges chapter 11 verses 30 through 39 as number 5 Jephthah burning his daughter as an acceptable sacrifice to God this bible passage also made the telegraph's top 10 list coming in at number 7 it is possible that Jephthah literally sacrificed his daughter as a, quote, burnt offering. Judges chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. Or is it possible? More so, it was asked in a question format. Is it possible that Jephthah literally sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering? Like, is this a thing? Did that take place? Well, yes, of course, it's possible. Sadly, many children in ancient history were sacrificed at the hands of powerful leaders. Man. Does that sound familiar to you? Okay, so yes, it's possible. Sadly, many children in ancient history were sacrificed at the hands of powerful leaders, including some evil kings of Judah. Second Chronicles 28, 1-3, chapter 33, verses 6-9. through But if Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter, he committed a, gra uh, he committed a grave sin. Since literal human burnt offerings were condemned by God under the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 12, 31 and chapter 18, verse 10. And hey, listen, we've said this and we've mentioned this in our past session last week. The Bible is an inspired book that records moments that are uh, uh, practiced by men who are not inspired, who are doing lawless things. God never said, oh, I, I want my followers to be polygamist, but yet they practice polygamy. Was that because God permitted it, uh, 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 authorized it? No. 
He suffered long through it because the people were that corrupt as the lineage and ancestry was going to bring forth the, the Son, the Christ. But he didn't say, oh yeah, that's what I want. No, no, God made it very clear from the very beginning. One male, one female, husband, wife, together as one. Okay. Well, God's not going to say, yeah, you know what, start uh, sacrificing your children there just because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an angry tyrant and I just want to see blood and I want to see little human beings being burnt alive. Well, no. Little human beings being burnt alive or being uh, murdered or killed or whatever is taking place is typically always at the hands of lawlessness. For instance, evil people have children. They do. They make, they make little babies. Evil people make little babies. Evil people do evil things. Good people, and when I say good, I mean decent, upright, moral, people have little babies too. And when evil people who have li little, little babies, they make little babies, evil people want to try to murder decent people who have little babies. Well, decent people are going to take their God-given privilege and freedom to defend themselves. And sometimes that calls for war. Sometimes that calls for a whole bunch of stuff that, sadly... As a result of evil people, little innocent babies die. That's just reality in this fallen world. If you uh, um, enter my driveway with uh, uh, your kids in the car and you're just AK-47, banana clip, the whole nine gorilla max towards me in my household, I'm going to have but no other option than to return fire in self-defense, in justice, and standing up to what is right. That's the last thing I want to happen, and this is a very extreme illustration or example that will probably not happen. I hope not. I pray not. But if it does, little babies and grown adults are going to be meeting Jesus. That's just what's going to happen. Sometimes we have to recognize that. Those accounts at times were recorded for our learning. It's not that God says, oh, I enjoyed this and this is what I authorize and this is what I want people to do. Not at all. He puts a law and says, that's not what I, thou shall not murder. Well, people have been murdering. So they're obviously not listening to God. I wish they would. It'd be a lot, it'd be a more peaceful life if we actually obeyed God's law, but we don't. Okay, bit of an excursion again sharing a bit of my studies, my experience with you as well. We keep reading, I quote, Despite what uh, Barker and others contend, there simply is no indication, the book of Judges, or anywhere else in Scripture, that God sanctioned Jephthah's actions. And such silence on God's part cannot reasonably be interpreted as approval, by the way. You know, admittedly, Judges 11.29 indicates that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, but this occurred prior to his journey through Gilead, Manasseh, and Mizpah, and prior to his battle with the Ammonites, which included conquering 20 of their cities, chapter 11, verse 33. Thus, the statement of Judges 11.29 references to a moment in time at least several weeks or months prior to Jephthah's carrying out his rash vow. What's more, having, quote, the Spirit of the Lord does not mean a person could never sin and do foolish things. An example, look at Samson. This phrase is found seven times in Judges. It can indicate God's consecration of a judge, such as in Oth Othniel's case. Othniel's, Othniel's, I can't pronounce these names, but that's what it says. Um, 
in Othniel's case, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel in Judges 3, verse 10. At other times, it refers more to the courage and superhuman strength that the Lord provided them, such as in Samson's case. Judges 14.6, chapter 14, verse 19, and chapter 15, verse 14. Jephthah was a courageous leader, but he was not without sin. Judges 11.3, Romans 3.23. If he literally sacrificed his daughter, he did so without God's authorization. Just like Lot wanting to give his daughters to these uh, homosexuals, uh, these aggravated and aggressive, hostile homosexuals, um, he shouldn't have done that. That's not a God, that's not God nature. That's not God mind. It's not Christ-like. In light of some of the statements later in Judges 11, it's quite reasonable to conclude that Jephthah actually only sacrificed his daughter in a figurative sense, similar to how the Levites, Numbers 3, 12 to 13, chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, similar to how the Levites were symbolically offered before the Lord. And you can compare that, of course, to Exodus 13, verse 2, 12, 16, and 22, 29 to 30. Consider that upon le learning of Jephthah's vow, his daughter and uh, her friends mourned for two months, though the text never indicates they mourned her death. What was their sorrow? Right? That's an honest question. What was their sorrow? Well, they, quote, bewailed her virginity. Judges 11.38. In fact, three times her virginity is mentioned. Chapter 11, verses 37 through 39, the last of which is noted immediately following the revelation that Jephthah, quote, carried out his vow with her which he had vowed. She knew no man. Chapter 11, verse 39. The statements seem to indicate Jephthah's daughter was likely sacrificed as a burnt offering at the tabernacle in the sense that she became one of the, quote, serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Exodus 38, 8, compared with 1 Samuel 2, 22. Perhaps like Anna, centuries later, Jephthah's daughter was, quote, offered to serve God, quote, with fastings and prayers night and day, never again to leave the area of the tabernacle, compared with Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. If Jephthah if, if killed his daughter as a literal burnt offering, the repeated bewailing of her virginity makes no sense. Just think about it. This is, again, Christianity is an educated religion. You gotta, you gotta be able to think for yourself here. Just ask the question. And don't take my word for it. I'm just simply sharing my path as well along with this article, which all point to the scriptures. Ta-da. Okay, parentheses. If someone, was to, if someone was about to kill your unmarried daughter, would you feel the need to mourn her virginity or her imminent death? We are human beings. These are words revealing and witnessed accounts of human beings doing human being stuff. I mean, it'd be quite strange. Like... <laughs> I can see it now, an episode of 48 Hours, right? Homicide and uh, uh, homicide accounts and whatnots. If, if you're speaking to someone and there's been a homicide, but the parent is more concerned about her virginity, I mean, I'd be like, I'd start to think he's the culprit. Like, I, I think you are the culprit. Or there actually is no homicide. There is no murder here. 
On the other hand, the article says, if Jephthah's daughter was about to be offered to God to serve perpetually at the tabernacle and to live the rest of her life as a single, childless servant of the Lord, it makes perfect sense that she and her friends would lament her lasting virginity. When we allow the Bible to explain the Bible, again, the scriptures are its best interpreter. You want to know what the Bible verse says? Keep reading. You'll find it explained. Really. Really. Uh, when we allow the Bible to explain the Bible, the symbolic offering of Jephthah's daughter makes perfect sense. But regardless, there was no wrongdoing by God in the events of Judges 11. See, when we reason through this, it makes sense. But are we willing to understand and accept the truth and change our thoughts? Oh, that's, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Always back to my illustration. Two individuals, same community. Asking the same question. Two individuals, same community, same question being asked. Are there any police officers here? One's asking because someone broke into his house. He is seeking assistance, public assistance. Someone robbed his house. Someone broke into his house and robbed him. The other one's asking because he's fleeing from law enforcement. He wants to ask the question because he wants to run away from the law. Why? Because he broke into his neighbor's house and stole stuff. Why are we asking the question? Are there Bible contradictions? Why are we asking? To flee from the answer or to actually get the answer, the service, and accept it and change our thoughts if necessary? Well, there you go. Look in the mirror and ask yourself that question. Number four, uh, Bible verses, right, that make atheists. I'm an atheist because, well, number four, God killed all sorts of people in the Bible. I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in the Bible. God. I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I don't believe in God. Why? Because he's evil. Well, he can't be evil. You don't believe in him. He don't exist. Uh, we used to think that way, didn't we? I know I did. That was a walking contradiction. God killed all sorts of people in the Bible. That's why I'm an atheist. Okay, well, let's go through this now in the article here from our friends over at apologeticspress.org. Plug, plug. Check it out. On virtually every extensive list of Bible verses that should supposedly produce unbelievers is a reference to God or the God of the Bible being a bloodthirsty murderer. Right? In his New York best-selling book, The God Delusion, oh, that was our Bible, wasn't it? Richard Dawkins, arguably the most famous atheist in the world today, called God, quote, a racist, infanticidal, genocidal, Capriciously, capriciously. Hey guys, listen. I'm a French dude speaking English words here, trying to pronounce them properly. Give me a break. Forgive me, please. Capriciously malvolent bully. He's the most evil thing imaginable. Now remember, there is no God, but I hate God because he's evil. <laughs> I, I know what that's all about. I used to live there too. There is no God. Why? Because I hate him. Why do you hate him? Because people I love die. That's not right. And he, if there is a God, he'd be a loving God. As you say, well, then people I love wouldn't die. And so there is no God. Look at all the evil. So then you do believe in God. You just hate him. No, there is no God. That's why I hate him. You hate him because there is no God? No, I hate him because he's evil. But I thought you didn't believe in any God. I don't. <laughs> Are you absolutely certain about that? There is no absolutes. And I am absolutely certain about that. Dun, 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 dun. We're in a small little dungeon, aren't we? Captivated in this little... This little steel box with no windows, no doors. Okay, let's keep reading, shall we? Richard Dawkins, 
Darkens, Dawkins, New York Times best-selling book, The God Delusion, right? He has a choice words there about God, a God apparently he don't believe in. He called God those names. Okay, let's keep re reading. Both the Telegraph's and Dan Barker's list of, quote, worst Bible passages included examples of God introducing the Israelites to destroy, not introducing, sorry, instructing the Israelites to destroy various Canaanite nations. So how could a loving God instruct one group of people to kill and conquer other groups, right? I mean, no loving God would do that. Forbid. That could never take, there's no way that a loving God would say that this people of mine have to go and kill these people there. No, that's not, it can't be, can't be real. No. Well, in truth, God's actions in Israel's conquest of Canaan were in perfect harmony with his supremely loving, merciful, righteous, just, and holy nature. Well, how can you say that? Oh, those crazy Christians. See, uh, you're not a free thinker like me. You're, you're brainwashed in all those cult-like things there. That's what you are, crazy Christians. Right? I used to say those things. In truth, God's actions in Israel's conquest of Canaan were in perfect harmony with his supremely loving, merciful, righteous, just, and holy nature. Well, how on earth is that possible? Well, first, numero uno, because punishing evildoers is not unloving. Ta-da! Because punishing evildoers is not unloving. Similar to how merciful parents, principals, policemen, and judges can justly administer punishment to rule-breakers and evildoers. So, too, can the all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe, compare that to Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11, loving-kindness and corporal or capital punishment are not antithetical. Prior to conquering Canaan, God commanded the Israelites, saying, quote, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if stranger, if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 8, to, uh, through 18 and uh, 33 and 34. And you can, of course, compare that with Romans chapter 13, verse 9. Why do we pay the taxes to our government? There is a purpose. Capital punishment upon evildoers, murderers. That's why we pay our taxes. Yeah. But what happens if there is a murderer at large, a serial murderer, and he's, he's apprehended, he's captured, and he gets capital punishment? the death sentence. That's just. That's what needs to happen. That's not an act of unlovingness. And you try to convince parents whose child has been murdered by a murderer that, oh, the judge is unloving to send this individual the capital punishment. You'd have to have a mental disorder which happens in today's world. Hey, look at this mass psychosis. I mean, people are truly delusional today. They think there are more than two genders. So, obviously, they think that butchering a child is love. Barbarically murdering a child is a woman's choice. It's health care. So, naturally, they would think that the God of the Bible would be some kind of a monster. You see how delusional we've become. 
But the truth will set us free from all those delusions and lies. It will, really. The article continues. The faithful Jew was expected, as are Christians, to, quote, not resist an evil person, Matthew 5.39, but rather go the extra mile, Matthew 5.41, and turn the other cheek, Matthew 5.39. Love, after all, is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13.10, compared with Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Interestingly, however, the Israelite was commanded to punish, even kill, lawbreakers, including, and especially, fellow Israelites. Just five chapters after commanding the individual Israelite to, quote, not take vengeance, but, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, God twice said that murderers would receive the death penalty, Leviticus 24, verse 21 and 17. So that's first. Second, the Canaanite nations were punished because of their extreme wickedness. God did not cast out the Canaanites for being a particular race or ethnic group. Never. God did not send the Israelites into the land of Canaan to destroy a number of righteous nations. On the contrary, the Canaanite nations were horribly depraved. They practiced, quote, abominable customs, Leviticus 18.30, and did, quote, detestable things, Deuteronomy 18.9. They practiced idolatry witchcraft, soothsaying, and sorcery. They attempted to cast spells upon people and call up the dead, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 11. <laughs> then it's like if, you know, it's describing America or Canada, fallen nations now, because of this evil wickedness. It, it, it's a, an ancient book that's always active and current to all cultures. It's amazing to me. Again, further evidence the book is indeed inspired. Let's keep reading here from this article. The inhabitants of Canaan would, quote, burn even their sons and daughters in the fire of their gods, Deuteronomy 12.30. Bring it to the altar of abortion. See, abortion has been going on for a long time. The Canaanite nations were anything but innocent. They were so nefarious that God said they defiled the land and the land could stomach them no longer. That's how evil it got. We're about there again, aren't we? Full circle, guys. Put your seatbelt on. Quote, The land vomited out its inhabitants. Leviticus 18.25 Now keep in mind that God warned Israel before ever entering Canaan that if they forsook his law, they too would be severely punished. Deuteronomy 28.15 and following, right? Okay. Sure enough, similar to how God used the Israelites to bring judgment upon the inhabitants of Canaan in the time of Joshua, he used the pagan nations of Babylon and Assyria to judge and conquer Israel hundreds of years later. What do you think happened to America? What do you think happened to Canada? I speak in the past tense because they fell. We've fallen at the hands of foreign barbaric uh, infiltration and a judgment. God permits these things to take place at our own request and free will. We want evil. Have at it. Let's see how that works out for you. We want ourselves evil kings that will be tyrants and oppressors that will murder us. Have at it. With enough bloodshed, you might just wake up and be like, oh, man, that was very foolish of us, wasn't it? Let's not do that for a while. Why do you think there's peace after war? Why do you think people tend to get along really quickly as neighbors after war? Because we don't want to do war again for a while. Why do you think war comes? Because evil 
evil wants to conquer everything. There was a time when we were like, we don't want evil, so we're going to fight against it. Now we're like, let's just be evil. Third in the article, unlike the impulsive, quick-tempered reactions of many men, Proverbs 14, 29, the Lord is, quote, slow to anger and great in mercy, Psalm 145, 8. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Immediately following a reminder to the Christians in Rome that the Old Testament was, quote, written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope, the Apostle Paul referred to God as, quote, the God of patience, Romans 15, verses 4 and 5. He certainly is. Through the Old Testament, the Bible writers portrayed God as long-suffering. When, quote, the wickedness of man was great in the earth in Noah's day, and, quote, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. The divine long-suffering waited, 1 Peter 3, 20. It appears that God delayed flooding the earth for 120 years as his spirit's message of righteousness was preached to a wicked world. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, and 2 Peter 2, verse 5. In the days of Abraham, God ultimately decided to spare the iniquitous, 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 iniquity, iniquitous city of Sodom. Not if 50 righteous people were found living therein, but only 10 righteous individuals couldn't find it. And what about prior to God's destruction of the Canaanite nations, right? Did he respond to the people's wickedness like an impulsive, reckless madman? Or was he, as the Bible repeatedly states and exemplifies, long-suffering, suffering long with us? Indeed, God waited. There was a grace period. There's an expiration date to his grace period, but there is a grace period in which he says, dude, listen, change. You guys are headed down the wrong path. Judgment's coming, man. You need to change. Nah, we're not going to. All right, have at it. He waited more than four centuries to bring judgment upon the inhabitants of Canaan. Four centuries. 400 years. After 400 years... Man, if I have to tell my kids 400 years that they need to pick up their room, I think I'm going to punish them. I think I'll do it after an hour. <laughs> but God waits 400 years. God says, suffers long with us. He's patient with us. Although the Amorites were already a sinful people in Abraham's day, God delayed in giving the descendants of the patriarch the promised land. He would wait until the Israelites had been in Egypt for, for uh, hundreds of years. Because at the time that God spoke with Abraham, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites was, quote, not yet complete, Genesis 15, 16. In Abraham's day, the inhabitants of Canaan, 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 to Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul of man. Okay, of Canaan were not so degenerate that God would bring judgment upon them. However, by the time of Joshua, more than 400 years later, the Canaanites' iniquity was full. And God used the army of Israel to destroy them. Yes, God is long-suffering. But his long-suffering is not an eternal suffering. His patience with impenitent sinners eventually ends. It ended for a wicked world in the days of Noah. It ended for Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Abraham. And it eventually ended for the inhabitants of Canaan whom God justly destroyed.
And if we just take the time to have a humble heart and a seeking mind, free thinking mind, independent, accountable mind to look into this information and rightly handle it and know its context, we'll be like, oh, that's why. We continue, it says, but what about the innocent children in Canaan, right? I mean, again, that was an argument of mine as well. God's a murderer. He murders little babies. He drowned little babies in the days of Noah. I don't want to follow that God. There is no God because he's evil. <laughs> Remember the illustration I gave you? If you pull up on my driveway f firing shots at me and you have your family in your, in your vehicle, I'm not... I don't want this to happen, but if you do that, I'm going to fire back. And as a result, your children might die. That's the last thing I want to happen. I pray those things never take place. Really, it's a nightmare. I would not want that to happen. But if you force my hand, my dear friend, you will meet Jesus, and so will your children. So will the little bitty children. It's not their fault. They're innocent. Whose fault is it? You. You chose to bring them in a dangerous environment? You want to go on an excursion to a volcano with your children and one of them falls and dies? Is it God's fault? You're driving drunk with your children in the backseat. You crash the car. They die. Is that God's fault? My child is outside playing. You're a drunk. You hit my child. You murder my child. Is that God's fault? No, it's your fault, buddy. And let me tell you, it's a bad one. Why did kids die? Because evil people doing evil things. It's not God's fault. God never wanted that to happen. Matter of fact, God instructed us, don't be evil. But what about the innocent children in Canaan? The children of Canaan were certainly not guilty of their parents' sins. That's an important one. I had to learn that one too. I was like, Man, is it, are, like we, are we born guilty of sin? Like I've heard from our ancestral lineage, like the religion that was given to us through the Roman Catholic Church. Is it true that we were born in sin? And other denominational uh, um, traditions as well believe that you're, born, you're conceived, you're sinful, you're guilty of it, and all that kind of nonsense. It's just not true at all. It's, it's, it's really not true at all. We aren't. And, it, and again, when you think for yourself, that's, remember how I started this episode? I was telling you, when you start to think for yourself and you get rid of all the third-party interpretations and their agendas to create Christianity in their own image— when you start reading it for yourself, you recognize a lot of stuff in here is very different than what calls itself Christianity out there. Well, that doesn't mean we hate... I, I don't hate people who still want to believe lies. I really don't. But I won't tell them that they're... I'll tell them you're believing a lie. But that doesn't mean I hate people. I just had to learn it like that. And I know some of you did the same thing. You're like, I just want to read it for myself. And you started reading it for yourself. And you're like, oh, whoa. We weren't born guilty of sin. We were actually conceived and ensouled and innocent. We belonged to God until our moment of independence and accountability. And we choose to sin, separating ourselves from God. That's what happened. That's what this book says, by the way. But just as an atheist can pluck out a verse and say, See, there is no God. Look at how evil he is. So can an individual who's seeking to create Christianity in his own image pluck out a verse 
and be like, see, here you are. You, you're born in, you were born guilty of sin. You weren't. Keep reading the verses prior and the, the verses afterwards. Look at the context. But what about the innocent children in Canaan? Okay, so the children of Canaan were certainly not guilty of their parents' sins. You can compare that, of course, with Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. They were sinless. They were. They were innocent. Precious human beings. Matthew chapter 18, verses 3, 4, and 5. So how could God justly take the lives of children who have no knowledge of good and evil, by the way? Deuteronomy 1, 39. How, how can that be? How, how would, why would God do that? There is no God. Look at how evil he is, right? Well, in truth, as uh, Brother Dave Miller properly noted, quote, including the children in the destruction of such populations actually spared them from a worse condition, that of being reared, that of being reared to be as wicked as their parents and thus face eternal punishment. All persons who die in childhood, according to the Bible, are ushered to paradise and will ultimately reside in heaven. Children who have parents who are evil must naturally suffer innocently while on earth. And that angers me to no end. It really does. To see these corrupt, disorderly parents butcher, castrate their children in an unreversible, I don't even want to call it surgery, or who bring their... How can you call yourself a mother when you bring your own child to be murdered or perverted or chemically castrated? I mean, that's why innocent little babies are murdered. That's why innocent children are perverted. It's not God. It's evil people believing evil things and telling themselves it's not evil, it's good. It's a crazy world, man. Fallen world. Children who have parents, okay, God, the giver of life, Acts 17, 25, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and only God has the right to take the life of his creation whenever he chooses for the righteous purpose that he has. At times in history, God took the life of men out of righteous judgment. At other times, as in the case of children, it was for merciful reasons. And I, I know the argument because I used to be there. I used to be that individual, right? Okay, so let's just murder all the babies then. They'll all go to heaven. What's your problem? Let's have more abortions. Let's have more war, right? I mean, that's what the Christians are saying. <laughs> you fools. <laughs> yeah, let's just murder more, right? Wow, I was so brainless, incapable of thinking. Of course not. Of course that's not a thing. That's not something that we should do. Okay, number five, Bible verses that make atheists. God is jealous and insecure. God is jealous and insecure. That's what the Bible says, so therefore there is no God. Richard Dawkins has alleged that, quote, the God of the Old Testament is, an argu is, is arguably the most unpleasant actor in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. That's what he says. Penn Jillette listed God being, quote, jealous and insecure. Seventh in his list of reasons to become an atheist. Dan Barker went so far as to say, quote, if you were forced to reduce the entire Old Testament to a single word, what would it be? It would be, or it would not be, he says, love. There is not enough love there to fill a communion cup. 
And which is interesting because Dan Barker has absolutely no standard of authority to speak about love. In his worldview, there is no love. Love does not exist. <laughs> Again, when you're an atheist, you're a walking contradiction. I know it. I used to be there. I entertained that worldview for, for, for a great deal of time. Atheism is a constructed, uh, nonsensical position for the purpose of alleviating guilt in our lives, living sinful things and practices. That's, that's, sorry, that's what I came to know my own self and be like, oh, wow. Okay, let's keep quoting here from Mr. Dan Barker, right? Mr. Atheist Dan Barker. The one word that sums up the scenario between Genesis and Malachi is jealousy, he says. Almost every page, every story, every act, every psalm, every prophecy, every command, every threat in those 39 ancient books points back to the possessiveness of one particular god who wanted to own and control his chosen love lover by demanding total devotion. Love me, I'm better than the others. Don't think at the, don't look at them. Look at me. You know, and again, he he makes this image of God to be this tyrannical, unrighteously jealous, controlling uh, being. The article continues. Indeed, the Bible reveals in no uncertain terms that God is a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. The truth is, though, however, sometimes jealousy is a good thing. I know. See, we tend to define a term in accordance to our own image and the way we want it to be described. And we'll say something like hate is, is always bad. It's all, it's inherently hate is inherently bad. Jealousy is inherently bad. But the truth is with a great many words, there is a good side to it or a righteous side to it and decent side to it. And there is also a wicked and evil and corrupt side to it. You can be righteously angry. And you can be unrighteously angry. You can sin. You can be righteously jealous. Or you can become toxic and unrighteous jealousy. The truth is, however, sometimes jealousy is a good thing. The word jealous is translated in the Old Testament from the Hebrew word kinya. Okay. Q-I-N something A-H. And in the New Testament, from the Greek word zealous, 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 the root idea behind both words is that of warmth or heat. The Hebrew word for jealousy carries with it the idea of, quote, redness of the face that accompanies strong emotion, whether right or wrong. Depending upon the usage of the word, it can be used to represent both a good and an evil passion. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul noted the negative side of jealousy when he wrote that, quote, love is not jealous. See, that's the negative side of jealousy. Interestingly, however, three times in the same context, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul used this word in a good sense to encourage his brethren to, quote, earnestly desire, zilute, spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 31, chapter 14, verse 1, and verse 39. He obviously was not commanding the Corinthians to sin, but to do something that was good and worthwhile. Later, when writing to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul was ever more direct in showing how there was such a thing as, quote, godly jealousy. He stated, quote, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Paul's burning desire was for the church at Corinth to abide in the love of God. As a friend of the bridegroom, Christ, 
Paul used some of the strongest language possible to encourage the bride of Christ at Corinth to be pure and faithful. In similar way, Jehovah expressed his love for Israel in the Old Testament by proclaiming to be a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. He was not envious of the Israelites' accomplishments or possessions, but was communicating his strong love for them. The scriptures depict a spiritual marriage between Jehovah and his people. Sadly, during the period of the divided kingdom, both Israel and Judah were guilty of, quote, playing the harlot, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 10. God called Israel's adulterous practice adultery, or idolatrous practice adultery. And for this reason, he had, quote, put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, chapter 3, verse 8. The fact is, Love has virtuous, jealous, a virtuous, jealous side. It just does. As a married man to a beautiful, faithful wife, I know that. It's not toxic. It's very seasoned, well-balanced. But it is true and real in my heart because I love my wife. I want to keep her secure. What atheists would not what atheist would not be, quote, jealous in a good sense of a wife whom he loved with all his heart, flirting with others in public and committing adultery with them in private? Um, someone who truly loves his wife is not going to, you know, entertain or allow practices that would diminish the quality of the union. Most everyone understands that in, uh, most everyone understands there is a sense in which one can be justly jealous. Such is especially true in the marriage relationship. Israel was God's chosen people, the article continues. He had begun to set them apart as a special nation by blessing their father Abraham, Genesis 12 verses 1, 2, and 3. He blessed the Israelites with much numerical growth while living in Egypt. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And among other things, he gave them written revelation, which, if obeyed, would bring them spiritually closer to Jehovah and even would make them physically superior to other nations in that they would be spared from various diseases. Okay? Like a bird that watches over her eggs and young with and young with jealousy, preventing other birds from entering her nest, God watched over the Israelites with righteous jealousy, unwilling to tolerate the presence of false gods uh, among his people. That makes sense. It makes sense. In addition, the Bible reveals that God is everyone or that God is every person's maker or father by creation. Sustainer, he is. Savior and judge. He was and is jealous, not only for Israel's love, but for everyone's and for everyone's own benefit. It is in everyone's best interest to have a loving, submissive relationship with our Heavenly Father. Ecclesiastes 12.7, Hebrews 12.9. Even as it is in every child's best interest to humbly submit to wise, loving, earthly fathers who have the best interest of their own children in mind. What loving, protective father is not angry and jealous of his wayward son's drug dealer who keeps his son's deadly addiction continuously supplied? Does a father not have a right to be jealous for his son's best interests and overall life? If so, why does God not have a right to be jealous for the souls of his children? 
God's desire or God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. He has perfectly truthful or he has a perfectly truthful and loving plan intended to save the world from punishment and to give us eternal happiness. For this reason or for these reasons he is jealous for our love, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. And my dear friends, that will have to uh, bring our session to an end, an hour in. And it looks like we're going to have to continue next week with part three of Atheist Bible Verses. And again, I, I it took me a long time to go through these. Um, because again, I had to completely change my frame of mind from what I thought was reality, finding out it was not reality, to now accepting what is reality. If we simply have an honest, humble, seeking heart, the answers are there. It's in the context. The more you get to know who God truly is, His nature, His function, instruction, command, His will, testament, the more so you see all the critics of the world in this fallen world dwindle away dwindle away. There is no contradiction in the book. God is not an evil, murderous tyrant. He really isn't. Quite to the contrary. He, the enemy, the accuser, a liar and murderer from the beginning. Now he is indeed the guilty party here. And he is the one who infiltrates our thoughts when we are naive and weak and makes us believe all kinds of nonsense. And we become slave to it. Become a free thinker. An independent thought. Utilize your free will. Think for yourself. Read for yourself. Don't take it from a third-party agenda. Read it for yourself. Open this book and read. There will be times where you say, I don't understand what's being said here. We can be there for each other together and work through it. It's in there. I assure you, the answers are in there. Some are more complicated than others, but it's available and it can be known. Thanks for paying attention with me. Hopefully there is substance in the things being shared in your life. Please consider subscribing, following, liking, sharing, drop a comment, all that good stuff further fuels the Added Souls ministry to move forward. It is a great motivator. Sign up to addedsouls.locals.com. Support us. You'll have some exclusive content there for you, and it allows us to keep working alongside the East Coast Church of Christ over here on the East Coast of Canada. And it's a beautiful work. Check out the .com, eastcoastchurchofchrist.com. Check out our Facebook page, East Coast Church of Christ. You can check out my website, addedsouls.com. Over at addedsouls.com, you'll have links to every location in which we produce our content. That good? That okay? Right? You are appreciated. You are loved. And listen, have a free-thinking mind, okay? Don't take my word for it. I may be wrong. But have an honest heart and read it for yourself. That's all, that's, all, that's all we're saying here. Stay focused, stay positive. Lord willing, tomorrow, 10 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time, we go live weekdays, right? We go live weekdays. Each day has its theme. You can look into that. Mondays, we share the sermon. Tuesdays, we have analyzing the lyric. We take a song from the world, look at the lyrics, analyze it. Wednesdays, we have a Bible study. We've been going through the book of Genesis. Thursdays, topical. 
Right now, we're going through a bit of a series regarding atheist verses or verses in the Bible atheists utilize to justify their atheism. On Fridays, we have sociopolitical conversations, current events, things of that nature. A bit more political, but always through the lens of Christianity and how we can, of course, apply practical application in our faith this day and hour. That okay? All right, man. Peace out.